Primetime with Sean Mooney is brought to you by Audible. Coming up, I'll tell you how you can try Audible absolutely free. However, standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I am so glad you're joining us, wherever you may be, uh, riding out the stay-at-home orders uh, around the country, around the world. I hope you are safe and that uh, you are healthy, and all of your loved ones, all your family members are doing okay, holding up. Uh, I hope that you've been able to keep yourself entertained. I hope part of it includes tuning in to all things Primetime with Sean Mooney. Of course, you know, every Monday we have our network classics that we drop, also an original episode every Wednesday of PTSM, and then, of course, the vault episodes that happen every Saturday. We drop them at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Other than that, you've uh, been able to get them early and ad-free, all of our content, as Patreon members, and for as little as $4.99 a month, you can get everything we do early and ad-free. As we uh, continue to add uh, video elements to whenever we can do the Skype interviews on video, you can catch those. You're going to get all the episodes early anyway, but then also you're going to get the added advantage of seeing these as we do them. Uh, You see them visually, uh, the interviews. So you get to see all the reaction to uh, uh, our guests and and me as we go through this. And we've got uh, a great episode coming up that's going to include that. I'll tell you about it. But uh, we're coming off an episode uh, with George South, who, uh, you know, as I I said, you know, he's the definition of a journeyman. Uh, This is a guy that has made a life out of uh, being involved in professional wrestling. He's done it all. Uh, Started working back in the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, in the new uh, millennium. Uh, He's been at it still stepping in the ring. He was on NWA, part of the Circle Squared. A competition. Uh, this guy is just incredible, and uh, he's he's still got a school going, and uh, also still makes a lot of appearances. And during our discussion, we talked about the impact of what's happening to the industry because of the coronavirus pandemic. Because a lot of these people, that's what they do. They uh, they they are dependent, and they're independent contractors. If you know what I mean. Uh, they are on their own. When they do a job, when they get done with that job, that's it. They look for the next one. So they need, they depend on They don't have guaranteed contracts. So a lot of these people, uh, even the best ones, uh, you know, are, are really struggling now because, you know, WrestleMania passed by. They didn't really do any kind of a WrestleMania 
you know, weak as the, a lot of these guys have gotten used to, where they would be able to go to wherever the city was, uh, where WrestleMania takes place, and make a lot of money. They could do a lot of appearances because a lot of these independent groups go there and have shows outside of WrestleMania, and there's all kinds of memorabilia shows and, and appearances that they can make. Uh, probably the biggest time of the year for them as far as money goes. And there was nothing this year besides probably all of the, you know, probably many of them have already lost uh, maybe a hundred or so appearances that, uh, that were lined up that have now been canceled because uh, they do, you know, they get this stuff booked way in advance and going to Europe and going, going to Japan. And it's not like it's something that's restricted to our country. This is around the world, so they got nowhere to go, nowhere to work. So they're uh, sitting at home or trying to do what they can to make money, sell their merchandise. If you can help in any way, do that. I mean, purchase their T-shirts, you know. um, If they've got uh, Patreon accounts, join them for the time. Help these guys out because uh, they really need it. And who knows how long it's going to be or what it's going to take to have the industry recover because this this is going on. And now they're starting to talk about, thank God, about reopening the country, different parts of the world. But who knows how long it's going to be before people are comfortable to going out into places where there's big crowds. Uh, you know, I mean, let's be honest here. You got to be a little wary. And I don't know if you're going out when you go to public places. Are you wearing the mask? Are you, uh, you know, doing everything you can? Uh, you do the wipes when you're going to, you're not putting, wearing your shoes when you come in the house. I mean, it, it's just a, a completely strange and new way of life. And I think that we're going to have uh, this bleed over into our lives from now on. Who knows if, uh, if we'll ever shake hands again. We'll have to come up with a different gesture. Uh, you know, uh, Japan, they bow. Maybe we'll come up with some, some version of our own, but uh, why would people shake hands Again, anytime soon. Hey, hi, how you doing? Just to exchange, why well, I'm glad to see you. Let's let's exchange uh, bacteria you know, by shaking hands. So even a fist bump, I, I I don't know if that. I don't think we're going to want to touch each other. So it is a, a very strange world out there we're experiencing, and I hope you're all getting through it. Uh, this week it's been uh, uh, you know coming off some really awful news. Uh, last Wednesday. A week ago, uh, you know, a bloody Wednesday with the World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Company, WWE, uh, laying off a, a bunch of superstars. And I was just looking at an article that um, was on CNN Business. And, of course, uh, the, you know, some of the names of the people that were let go in all this, Drake Maverick, uh, Zack Ryder, who had... Uh, you know, uh, returned there, and I was really sorry to hear about that. Uh, Kurt Hawkins, Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, uh, lots of big names. Heath Slater, Eric Young, uh, Rowan, Sarah Logan, No Way Jose, Mike Chioda, who had been with the company for, uh, has to be over 30 years. Uh, he'd been uh, with, with them, and uh, a lot of other pe- people who had been with the company for decades, a lot of people that behind the scenes uh, we let go. Mike Canellis, Maria Canellis, EC3, Aiden English, Leo Rush, uh, as well as Primo, uh, Kurt Angle, who uh, you know had returned as uh, you know he'd done some ring uh, work as well, but also was working as a backstage producer. And there was a few others that uh, very notable names who maybe haven't been in the ring for a number of years, but have been working backstage were let go. And uh, you know, it's just just amazing 
that you you see this happening because boy the timing could just not be uh, worse for a lot of these people and they you know in other places where when they do this kind of thing uh, uh, if they would have let people go which they do all the time well there's other options for you you can go for example go work for AEW or one of the other independents out there or maybe go to another part of the world go to Japan and work that isn't you know, nobody is conducting business right now. Nothing that involves large crowds is happening, regardless what it might be. You know, sports, uh, you know, MLB is not uh, is out. And we'd be starting the season, be well into it at this point. And uh, that isn't happening. And, uh, man, they even had to do the NFL draft via, uh, you know, social media and doing all these things. It's just, just frightening. And who knows when this is all going to, uh, you know, change uh i know that a lot of these people are taking it very hard i mean they were living their dreams in their lives that they get to this point and uh i i had heard rumors before this uh before this all happened that you know big cuts were coming with the wwe um and now with the xfl having folded again uh they are going to be facing some serious financial issues and this is all part of it and they're saying that they're saving i think four million a month in in payroll by doing this but boy just devastating some lives and i saw a tweet from drake drake maverick who uh, you know was very emotionally distraught um understandably so that uh you know these guys are all gonna have to find a way to make a living uh, over these next months, and I hope it's not into a, a year or so, but it's just just uh, sad, really sad to see. And, uh, of course, my best goes out to all those people. Um, also, really, really, really sad news, uh, hearing about the passing of Howard Finkel this week. And I've spoken about Howard before and the impact that he had on me um, as a, a new employee at the WWF. Uh, going in there and, and not knowing really anything about the business and, of course, how to survive in that company. And he was one of the people who helped me out quite a bit, especially in the event center. A lot of people don't know Howard was a big influence on that uh, part of of uh, what we did there at the WWF. He basically ran it. He kept track of all the interviews, and he would be in the room when they did these uh, with all the guys all day long at these TV tapings. He he would keep straight, uh, you know, who was what order these guys were going to come in and do these promos, what they were, uh, you know, cutting them in relation to with their storylines, and of course he kept it all straight. And what we did back in Stanford with the event center, and making sure that uh, these all got done and it, and they were in the, the in the right order of where they were supposed to be presented on all of the shows. And I tell the story of how you know we had the red phone on the desk and it was Howard who would be dispatched to call me and tell me that I had to redo like 20 markets or something crazy because uh, one of the superstars had gotten hurt or whatever. And uh, that wasn't a fun phone call. Whenever I saw that phone blinking, I knew it was not good news. But, uh, you know, Howard was just uh, an incredible person, uh, very unique. If, if you knew Howard, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But God, did he love the business and boy did he love the wwe and took great pride in the fact that he uh, was officially the first employee of the wwf as the the company has uh, acknowledged and he was very very proud of that but uh, with the company forever 
and really sad. I knew he had been ill for a while. I really wish I would have had a chance to talk to him. I, I reached out a few times uh, early on and I wanted to get him on the podcast, but we were never able to make it happen. And uh, really just uh, sad, sad, sad news. Um, and I, I do my, my uh, condolences to the, to the family and all the people that were close to him and took care of him in the end. Uh, but uh, he will be sorely missed and, and remembered for a long time as really the voice of the ring of the WWF, WWE. Um, rest in peace, my friend, uh, Howard. You, you definitely will be missed. Um, with that, we've got uh, another great episode uh, here this week as uh, we bring on uh, Guy Evans. And uh, we did this, this interview a, a, a few weeks back uh, I really got into just the research uh, on on uh, that whole Monday Night Wars and was really looking forward to uh, getting a guy on because there's the you know the the other book that uh, kind of contrasts uh, contrasts the the version of Nitro uh, this this book so to see the the uh, the way that the story is told I thought was very interesting and uh, in this conversation. Uh, we we learn we learn a lot about uh, the early beginnings of how this all came together, and of course with Eric uh, Bischoff. Uh, regardless of how you saw all that happen, it was a tremendous time in the uh, world of professional wrestling because it was changed forever. And uh, regardless of what you think of, of Eric Bischoff, uh, you have got to give him credit. Um, he was the guy who who drove it and uh, originally came up with a way to compete with the WWF, WWE, uh, by, and you'll, uh, you know, soon discover, I'll tell you why, that, uh, why that philosophy was so important to him. But uh, he knew that you, he couldn't compete with the WWE by being like them. And, and uh, he didn't, so you said you have three choices. You either compete with them head to head and, and offer the same kind of product that you think is better or you don't, which is the other side because you can't, you can't keep up with them or you're different. And that is a philosophy that he uh, would follow throughout his career. And uh, the reason I bring that up is that uh, uh, this week we've got Guy Evans and we are going to follow this up the next week with an interview with Eric Bischoff. We uh, got him on the program a long time uh, uh, coming, I had wanted to get Eric on for a long time, but of course he was incredibly busy with a lot going on in his life. And uh, right now he's got a little time, so uh, we reached out and uh, he said sure. And uh, we had about an hour and a half conversation. You'll be able to hear that a week from this Wednesday. But I thought it was a great way to set this up by having uh, the guy Evans episode uh, first, uh, where he can uh, you know tell the story and kind of lay it out. Uh, I will tell you, we don't go deep diving into the Monday Night Wars because, my God, have you not, uh, if you have been interested in that, there are so many different outlets for you to uh, find out uh, what happened during those years, of course, and, and you can hear it from the source every week on 83 Weeks. But I, uh, the, you know, that was, a, although a very incredible, impactful part of his career, uh, he's he's done a lot more. and And I was fascinated by what led him to that point to where he was capable of doing what he did and also beyond and what it, uh, what he did uh, uh, beyond uh, those, that, that period of time. So you're going to hear all about that. 
But first of all, we're going to get to this episode with Guy Evans uh, and, uh, and talk about his book, Nitro. So what do you say? Let's get to it. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, folks, my guest on primetime this time out is a man who chronicled a fascinating time in the history of professional wrestling, a time that would change the business forever, a period known as the Monday Night Wars and beyond, all in a book entitled Nitro, about the rise and fall of the WCW. Welcome, Guy Evans. Guy, how are you? I'm doing great, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the invite. You know, uh, we, we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover here, but, you know, after reading the book and, uh, you know, and I, I, I like to sum things up. I mean, I just like looking at the whole thing uh, and that period of time and everything that happened with the WCW um, to me is like all because of this tremendous, this one tremendous idea, one great storyline that centered on uh, what has now become you know, one of the greatest gimmicks of all time, uh, NWO. And without its occurrence, uh, we wouldn't be chatting right now. Uh, and hmm. people wouldn't still be talking about it today. Um, am I off on this or does that about sum it up? Well, I, I would have to say, and I think uh, people who've had a chance to, to check out the book would probably yeah. uh, be of the opinion that, you know, it would be a, a little bit more complex than that, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, when, we, when we look at uh, <laughs> sort of the, the business reasons why WCW did so well for a period of time and, and ultimately okay. declined. But I think certainly, you know, I think, you know, from a creative standpoint, you look at the impact of that storyline and, and quite frankly, you know, the inability to follow up on that. Um, yeah. Obviously, uh, you know, a major, major part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think Dusty Rhodes said it, uh, you know, and it's certainly been described many times before, and we've heard it before, but, you know, lightning in a bottle. I mean, it really was this uh, new idea that really had not happened in wrestling before, and we're going to get into all of this. But uh, before we do, uh, and I think it's just going to add some context to this, uh, why do the book? How did you, uh, you know, decide that this story needed to be told? That's a good question. I'll try to be as succinct as I can. So as we were just uh, talking about off the air, uh, you know, I grew up in the in the UK Mm -hmm. and I was one of those fans that was made a fan uh, originally through the mid to late 90s uh, wrestling boom. And um, of course, even on our side of the pond, you know, wrestling was a a huge deal, a huge mainstream deal um, at that time, especially as you got towards the end of the decade and uh, into the early 2000s, you know, which was a shame for WCW, really, as they started to decline. Mm. Um, But I I actually followed uh, the WWF and WCW really closely back then. And and it was a huge part of my uh, my growing up and many fond memories of, of, of watching it with friends and so on. And when WCW went away, um, to be honest, that was really the extent of my interest in wrestling for quite some time. Um, you know, I think like many other fans, I kind of stuck around for perhaps a year or so uh, when they did the ill-fated invasion storyline and brought in a lot of those WCW guys. And you always kind of had faith that, you know, they were somehow, some way going to do the, you know, the Super Bowl of wrestling between the two companies and um, just kind of lost interest, you know, around 2002 or so. And fast forward, uh, I guess it was around late 2009, early 2010, 
bizarrely enough, um, I learned, I think, through a friend originally, that TNA wrestling were ostensibly, in my mind anyway, trying to, uh, to some measure, you know, reignite or, or recreate the feeling of the Monday Night Wars. And if you recall mm. at that time, they were bringing in, you know, Hulk Hogan and, and Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff and all of these guys. Right. And that, that really started getting me thinking about wrestling again for the first time in, in a long time and thinking about WCW and what a big part it was of my life. And I started checking out a lot of the uh, various documentaries and books and different accounts of the story that were already out there. And I kind of thought, you know, I think there's at the very least a different story that could be told, perhaps even uh, at the risk of sounding pretentious, maybe a, a richer or a deeper story here that someone could explore. And finally, around 2014, 2015, I kind of said, well, if no one else is going to approach this in the way that I think would be, you know, really interesting or even more interesting mm-hmm. um, to add to what's already been done, um, then, you know, I'll uh, have a go at it. And uh, little did I know what that was going to lead into. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, of course it wasn't, uh, you know, the death of WCW certainly told it in in a in a different way. I've read both books now, and uh, really it's it, it's kind of fascinating to uh, see the the differences in how the story has been told. And uh, I, I tell you the the depth that you went as far as talking to uh, people involved in, behind the scenes, and uh, you know with the Turner. Uh, you know, organization and just it, it really it it was just fascinating reading for me. Um, but before we talk about that, how all this really started to uh, you know change the world of professional wrestling, I think it's important to also uh, you know discuss what was happening before all this. I mean, years before. I mean, you know, my era was you know late '80s, early '90s. Before this all really started to heat up, I was already out of wrestling in, uh, after '93. But, you know, I knew uh, a lot about WCW. I knew about what was what it was at the time. And there was a rich history behind WCW. I mean, you talk about, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling and all this and uh, how Ted Turner obtained the companies. Um, But it, it, uh, you know, at that time, it was as though, I mean, I'm not saying that Turner wasn't, you know, involved or wasn't Mm -hmm. of this wrestling fan. But what was happening at that time where he didn't put into the, put the resources in and, and go for it? Because we knew that there was always this animosity with, with Vince McMahon. So those, those prior years, so we're talking late 80s and 90s, and I'm sure he did a lot of uh, research on that. What was happening with the company then? Well, I think what's interesting, and you kind of alluded to it there, um, you know, I, I hope about this book is the fact that it's informed by uh, over 120 former yeah. TBS and, and, and WCW employees, you know, and that was something that I, I suppose I identified, you know, as I mentioned, looking at some of those other accounts, you know, you were hearing these names come up time and time again, whether they be Jamie Kellner or Harvey Schiller or mm-hmm. um, people of that ilk, you know, these sort of uh, mythical names who worked yeah. not necessarily on the wrestling or, side. Yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. But people on the Turner side. And I kind of thought, yeah. well, you know, it would be nice to hear from some of these people. And I suppose, you know, I mentioned that in a way to answer your question, because, you know, it was quite palpable uh, when I started speaking to people and I started looking over a lot of the company materials that I was able to get access to um, at just, quite frankly, the level of disdain uh, that existed the higher up you got in the Turner Broadcasting hierarchy 
for WCW prior mm. to the period in which the company started to have real success. Uh, you know, there's, there's stories in the book about various executive committee meetings where, you know, in so many words, the idea is pitched to, to get rid of wrestling from the Turner networks. And of right. course, as many, many people know, you know, Ted was that lone voice on quite a few occasions to say, you know, this isn't going to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's something actually that feeling that to some degree persisted even as the company started to to do well. Um, of course, you know, once Nitro really kicked into high gear and WCW was the number one, not only wrestling company, but but show on cable, um, you know, I think there was a begrudging, you know, acceptance of the company within, within Turner. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned the feeling um, before Nitro launched and everything described in the book ha- happened. I think, you know, one way would be to describe it as, you know, a feeling of embarrassment, really, for a lot mm-hmm. of those corporate higher-ups that, you know, uh, part of our portfolio or part of our programming schedule is uh, is World Championship Wrestling. I think, uh, again, those attitudes, in, in some cases, persisted even for years after that. Yeah, and it wasn't as though, and I, you know, I remember during my, my era there that, you know, WCW wasn't a joke to us. I mean, there was great mm-hmm. talent down there. We saw, you know, pe- people like the, the Road Warriors and, you know, other talent that we loved to have. And, and eventually they would make their way to the WWF. But you had, you had old school guys running it. You had, you know, Bill Watts and, and uh, Dusty and, you know, Ric Flair down there. And, uh, what changed to the point where I know that when, when Watts was ousted for, uh, nefarious reasons, but mm-hmm. it, it seemed like a change needed to happen. But what changed to where, uh, you know, an opportunity opened up where somebody like Eric Bischoff, who was just basically an announcer there, would have a chance to uh, leap forward like that and take over uh, the company? Well, I think you'd have to identify that really he was, you know, in retrospect, the per- perfect person you know, at that period of time. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, as the book details, there was more or less widespread shock around the industry when he was given that role, you know, especially as you mentioned there, based on the role that he occupied prior to that. But I think he was, you know, one could say from the perspective of uh, the television executives, perhaps somewhat of a wrestling person, but not too much of a wrestling person, you know, someone who could speak their language as I think it describes in the book, with sort of a, a reassuring ease, you know, someone who would be at home in a uh, in a, in a boardroom meeting or, or pitching um, the product to advertisers, but also someone who had the ability to t- take care of business on the wrestling side as well. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, in terms of how he got that opportunity, you know, he would probably be the uh, the, the ideal person to to talk about that. But I suppose from my vantage point, you look at all of the uh, various characters who had gotten a shot in some form or fashion at taking WCW to where Turner, you know, and Ted Turner specifically wanted to, wanted it to go. And, uh, you know, it was almost like, this is it. This is last chance saloon. We're going to give this guy, um, the reins and we're going to see, you know, what happens. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting sort of exercise to think about what would have become of WCW in short order had Eric Bischoff failed like a lot of his predecessors. Um, you know, we probably wouldn't have seen um, a lot of, of what happened in the years thereafter. You know, and, and uh, you know, Eric Bischoff, and we shouldn't play off that he was just some announcer. I mean, he obviously mm-hmm. possessed a lot of talent. Uh, 
mm-hmm. that maybe hadn't had the opportunity to uh, you know, show within that company. But like you said, you talked to a lot of these executives, and I know reading through the book, uh, they recognize early on he wasn't, uh, you know, just bluster. I mean, they could recognize mm-hmm. talent in somebody, I'm sure. Otherwise, they would have never reached the, the heights that they did in the corporate world. But I, I, what struck me, though, is that, you know, at this point, Turner had to have been pumping millions of dollars still into this uh, failing, uh, you know, wrestling organization. And like you said, did it really come down to the fact that, okay, you know what? Either we're going all in, and if it doesn't work, then then okay, I I you know I'll relinquish you because you guys keep telling me get rid of this dog that's just you know sucking us dry. Hmm. Uh, was that what at the point it was, and and is that why uh, they were willing to to immediately start putting a lot of money into this? Well, I think you know one would have to sort of derive a, a, a sense of that looking at yeah. the comments that were made at the time and also the way that people recall the story uh, now looking back then i think you know the subject of wcw's finances as you mentioned is also a very complex topic that we could probably spend an entire podcast diving into and there's a particular chapter of the book i think it's chapter nine uh which is called an age-old problem where really you know i, I try to um again utilizing uh, the, the, the insight of the people who are actually making those financial decisions and preparing those statements and so on. I try to describe just what a complex mess not only WCW's books were, but also, uh, the entirety of, of Turner Broadcasting as well. You know, this was not a company that did, uh, accounting well because quite frankly, yeah. they didn't, they did not, you know, place a very, um, high degree of emphasis on it. So, you know, whenever, uh, and I think you get the sense reading the, this book as well. Whenever you look at what WCW made or lost in a particular year in terms of what was reported, you know, that does have to, t- that does have to be taken with a certain grain of salt just because of the very unorthodox and confusing and complex way that Turner actually did their books across the company. And, and as far as the timeline uh, goes, Guy, because when, when uh, Eric was given the reins on this and, uh, I know at some point Turner called him over and said, okay, uh, why aren't we beating uh, Raw? And he said, well, because they're on Monday night and they're on this network and uh, they can go live if they want. And Turner said, well, then we're going to do that. But how much time from the t- when he took over, because he had to get his feet underneath him and, and come up with some plan uh, mm-hmm. for how he was going to change all this, uh, what was that span and how did he prepare? Because I know that as he tells it, and as you, you tell it in the book, that he, he knew he couldn't come out saying we're better than the WWF, mm-hmm. but he, he could say we're different. And so how did that all play out to the point where they were going to be going head to head? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think the first thing I'll say is, you know, the, the infamous meeting that you're alluding to there between, uh, or, or involving, I should say, Ted Turner and Eric Bischoff, you know, mm-hmm. is one that's been discussed and, and dissected endlessly over the years. I mentioned, you know, yeah. some of those other accounts of the story. What people might be interested to know is there was a meeting before that meeting, you know, and that's actually where yeah. the, the book, the book starts. So that, um, that comment, 
made by Ted to to Eric wasn't exactly an off the cuff comment. And I think, yeah. you know, people people get a sense of that after reading chapter one. Now, in terms of how much time there was to prepare, you know, the meeting itself was in June that the show premiered in, in September. So pretty short period of time, if you think about it, in terms of launching, you know, this new weekly show. Now, one thing that I wish I would have asked um, Eric Bischoff to, to comment on now that you phrase the question in that way is how, in fact, that particular, how, how he arrived at that um, philosophy of, as you said, you know, we, we probably can't convince people because of the historical cachet that our competitor um, owns. We probably can't okay. convince people that we're the better show, but we can present something that's entirely different and give people a choice. And that's something that, you know, w- would be interesting to hear him talk about in terms of how he came to that thought process. Because I think, you know, and, and again, just so people who haven't read the book understand that I think, you know, Eric Bischoff himself has talked about this as we get later in the book, there's, you know, some content that relates to his tenure at WCW. I think he's described as being, you know, very difficult to read at times. And, um, and certainly, you know, uh, the, the good and the bad is in there for sure. But I think, you know, one would have to, um, look at that, that philosophy of presenting something different and, um, and sort of come to the conclusion that was a pretty brilliant way of conceptualizing what the program could be. Yeah, and and I just uh, I just have to think, and I, I certainly wasn't there or ever had a, a conversation with him about it. But you know, it's kind of like okay, they they gave him this position. Like he probably was like, what? You know, like oh, I couldn't believe they did. And then it's like okay, and I think he was like, now what? And um, do you know where the uh, the origin of NWA started? I know he. He, he talked about uh, some influence from Japan and uh, and the idea of blurring that line of reality and, uh, you know, and suspension of, uh, of your, you know, belief. Uh, do you from your viewpoint, where do you think the origins of, of, of NWA or NWO rather uh, started? Yeah. So we, we talk about, you know, the influence of his trips to Japan and how wrestling was, was being presented uh, yeah. in Japan and, 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 you know, how that may have sort of informed the thought process. I think one thing that's evident when you go back and look at those shows is, you know, in the, the Nitro era leading up to that time, certainly it seemed like they had sort of put their toe in the water in terms of experimenting with a couple of more realistic uh, storylines and, and approaches to, to programming. Um, but I think one thing that I really gained an appreciation of um, having completed the book, uh, you know, because I, I do have a, a lot of respect for professional wrestling as a genre, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and everyone who's, who's involved in it. And I think done, mm-hmm done well it's just a you know magnificent form of entertainment um but one of the things i really grew to appreciate was a lot of times you know some of the best ideas some of the best concepts that as fans we may sit back and think you know this is all being uh put up on a board somewhere and they've got the next six months of programming you know absolutely planned out to a t you know a lot of times and and this was certainly the case with wcw um you know this stuff was for lack of a better word organically evolving week to week <laughs> and uh you know the the spontaneous nature of how a lot of the you know you mentioned the nwo storyline how a lot of that yeah. came to be you know i think was you know reacting to what had worked the previous week reacting to um 
you know, in the moment, what would be the logical next step in the, in the storyline? And, um, you know, I think Eric Bischoff himself talks about that in the book. I know Diamond Dallas Page has a couple of interesting sections on how that would work at times. Um, and that's not to say that certain things were not planned out, of course. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I think, again, as, 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 a, as an outsider, as someone um, going through the process of really learning about this on, on a deep level, um, I got an appreciation for how important it is to, to uh, you know, to also sort of uh, find that, that balance between planning everything out and allowing for those spontaneous things to happen. Yeah, and what's amazing about it is, I mean, the planets just have to line up. I mean, that, and they did. I mean, because, I mean, you think of all the variables in all this with Scott Hall and the timing of the contracts with uh, him and Kevin Nash, mm-hmm. and then saying, yeah, there's a third member, and then not knowing who that was going to be and uh, and this playing out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot uh, was left to chance on this, don't you think? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, if those uh, contracts, speaking of Hall and Nash, were yeah. apart by a, a wider margin, um, you know, everything that followed thereafter in the storyline wouldn't have, I wouldn't even say wouldn't quite as, uh, have clicked the same way. It wouldn't have clicked really at all because, of course, you had the, um, I think, uh, implicit suggestion, um, although I know there's been some discussion about this over the years, but I think most fans, you know, recognized at the time and would still recognize now that a big part of the appeal was quite obviously that these are characters from the other show, from mm-hmm. the WWF, from, you know, Vince McMahon's company coming to, uh, invade WCW. And of course, you know, that distinction in terms of how they were being presented was the, the basis of, uh, a very long running, uh, set of lawsuits, you know, between the companies. Um, but absolutely, if, if the circumstances were different, if the, if the planets didn't, uh, all, all come into, uh, into alignment, um, then, then, you know, it pro- probably would have been an impactful storyline, but certainly not one that really just put WCW on, uh, on, on a, on a rocket ship in terms of its success after that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and folks, and, uh, you, I'm repeating myself, uh, in a sense that if you, you know this book, but for those who don't, uh, the premise, uh, being that, you know, this, these, uh, superstars from the WWF, have seen what, uh, you know, the WCW has been doing and mouthing off and saying, you know, this is where the big boys play. And uh, you've got Scott Hall coming down and calling them out and saying, we're going to take over. And uh, unwittingly, how did the WWF help them? Well, you talk about the losses, but but in a sense, uh, they did help a lot in this, don't you think? Well, I'm, I'm curious to throw that back at you for a second. In what way, from your perspective, did they, did they help after that began? Well, because they, uh, they added legitimacy to it that mm. pe- folks were, you know, really questioning what, what is going on because mm. Vince is obviously pissed off about this and they're, you know, they're, these are their characters and they're down there and whatever the, whatever it is, because you've got Hall and Nash saying that, uh, you know, veiling the fact we're representing the big company up there. Mm. But, uh, but at the same time, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe they've run out of, they, you know, run out of chances with the WWF and they're fine. They're looking for a new home and they're going to take it over. I mean, there was like people mm. didn't know what to think, but there was that, that edge of reality to it. And I say the WWF unwittingly uh, helped them because mm. if they, you know, which was normal for what we did back then, guy was, mm. 
Vince it just didn't notice it. Like whatever was out there, you just it just didn't exist. The fact that he uh, made it clear that it did mm. helped them tremendously. So I guess to borrow a term from the wrestling business, then you're, you're kind of saying his modus operandi was, you know, not to sell it. And yeah, basically uh, they, were, they were they were kind of putting it over, if you will, by um, adding that <laughs> legitimacy, as you said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's it's actually a very good observation. It's, it's something yeah. I hadn't quite thought about before, you know, and I, I think also about how different things could have been if WCW had followed through on some of, some of its original plans for Hall and Nash. And this yeah. is something that, um, I was, you know, quite pleased to include in the book because I'm, I don't think it had been reported before, which was, um, for example, you know, the, the character, uh, of, of Diesel, who was of course coming into mm-hmm. to WCW, that there was, internal discussions and actually um, uh, sort of actions taken to bring him in as Axel, for example. So we we look back on it now again, going back to that point about um, sometimes it appears like there's this, this grand plan, you know, like from day one, it was decided (laughs) these guys are going to be Hall and Nash. Um, You know, there was, there was a name in place for, for Scott Hall and for Kevin Nash. And, you know, I think if, if, for example, those ideas were followed through upon. We probably look back on the storyline in a different way. Yeah, yeah, it would have been just a you know new gimmicks down exactly. south. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. because they did. I mean that uh, that is what. And whether uh, Bischoff realized it or not, or the people that were involved, that they were creating this this uh, this level of reality where people. Uh, whether or not they knew because they knew the business or not, they wanted to go for this ride. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that was a huge part of it. But at the same time, and, and I saw time and time again when I was with the WWF where, uh, you would see they had somebody that they thought had, had it all and maybe had a great gimmick for them, but mm-hmm. didn't know where the storyline was going. And they, they just left. They, it, it just happened, like you said before, organically. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened here, because like you said, uh, week to week, a lot of times they probably didn't know what was going to happen. And, and uh, wisely, they left that up to the people who were watching it. Mm. And, and one of the aspects that I find quite fascinating, especially as you compare it to the modern presentation of wrestling. And sure. by that, I, I, I really, you know, I'm referring to, I suppose, the WWE primarily. But you think about how tightly everything appears to be scripted and timed out and, and structured and perhaps regimented would be a, you know a better word in terms of how it's presented and y- you think about um the the approach utilized or, or applied in wcw and the fact that you know i think it's in the book but if not i know eric bischoff and kevin sullivan and and, and some others who are obviously integrally involved in the creative process have talked about this the feeling that to some degree, they did want a certain level of chaos, um, because mm-hmm. in, in so far that it, it could actually aid the eventual product um, that was digested by by the viewers at home. And and we talked about that fine line before and and, and where the balance is. You know, one could argue as as time went on that 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 balance probably became a lot more difficult to to uphold. Um, but I find that that quite interesting that. Um, you know, at, at times you speak to a lot of the people, especially those on the production staff at WCW, and they will express a lot of frustration um, at, uh, you know, the shows being 
written up until the very last second and changed you know, while while the show was on the air. And yeah. obviously, when the, the company's fortune started going the other way, that was a major issue. But I do wonder whether there is, um, you know, a, a scaled back sort of element of that um, that can be and probably should be part of of any good wrestling show where you don't necessarily want everything to be, um, you know, carried out by the book because it's going to come across as, you know, what we have seen, I would argue, in the last few years, which is a very sort of stilted, awkward, um, you know, a series of shows where it's pretty obvious the the performers are reading from a script and and trying to stretch out, you know, their various segments to hit the uh, the TV cues. So um, I hope I hope I'm not being too long winded there, but hopefully you can see where I'm getting at. No, no, absolutely. And um, another huge variable in this and it all working was uh, Hulk Hogan doing a turn. And uh, you talk about in the book uh, just how, uh, you know, what the process was of that and that it could have gone either way. The night that it happened, they weren't sure if, mm. if uh, you know, Terry was going to, to go through with it. So, I mean, how uh, much of a process was that and really how close did it come to him not doing it? I think it came very close by all accounts. I mean, there's the the famous story of, you know, Hogan and his agent being held at Kevin Sullivan's house the night before and some last minute nego- negotiations and yeah. deliberations and, and second guessing and so on. And, uh, you know, I know, you know, as, as many people listening will know, Sting, of course, was penciled in to be the, uh, the plan right. B if, yeah. if plans, you know, went awry. And again, as we discussed earlier, uh, should that have happened, you know, probably be a, a, a pretty, uh, impactful turn, I, I would say, probably would have generated some decent amount of interest uh, for a period of time, but certainly, you know, nothing on the level of of Hulk Hogan when you consider not only the fact that um, that we're talking about Hulk Hogan, but his specific history with the WWF, and you know, him being the guy that really um, was part of that that national um, expansion in the 80s. I mean, really looking back at it. He, he was the only choice really for that, that role. And I think, you know, regardless of, um, whether people listening were a WCW fan or regardless of your, um, you know, opinions on, on the, on the product during those, those years, um, you'd have to, you'd be hard pressed to make the case, I think, that that storyline from the initial debut of Hall all the way up until, the turn from Hogan was nothing short of brilliant, really. I mean, just some of the best, um, the best wrestling television, I would argue that, that we've seen. So just in, in those years, you know, the company was just, just absolutely on fire at that point. Yeah. And it is really, it is uh, amazing. Uh, I mean, I witnessed the, the, you know, the, the gigantic wave of, of Hulkamania and, uh, but when he went down to uh, WCW um, and they cost them a lot of money to get him there. They didn't know uh, what that return was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it got to the point where people were tired of of that act. I mean, they, they had, uh, you know, ridden it all and, and had uh, washed up on shore at that point. And yet he still uh, clung to that. I mean, I, mean, I guess it's his legacy, but mm. man, he, he would uh, reach new heights again. And uh, it just it struck me that uh, it was that difficult a decision. But, you know, I imagine in that point it was a huge gamble for him 
uh, that that paid off paid off tremendously. But do uh, you think it, that immediately? I mean, that 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 night it happened, at least the way it's described, that uh, they knew they had something at that point. Like they said, okay, this isn't going to be a couple of week deal. That this is. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, um, you know, you look at the reaction of the fans live in attendance there in Daytona, yeah. you know, it was unlike, you know, certainly anything you'd seen, um, on a, on a WCW show before and you'd be hard pressed to find any sort of, um, equivalent to it, I think. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know from, again, speaking to a lot of the, the production people, um, you know, there being a sense that, you know, this, this, Obviously, you know, at that time it just happened, but there was a sense that this is going to be something, you know, unlike what we've had before. This is going to be um, potentially a, a company altering storyline as opposed to something that you could run with for a limited, you know, number of, of pay-per-views, for example. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, you go back and you look at the numbers and you look at what the interest was following that turn. It, it wasn't immediate. It wasn't mm-hmm. as if um, the very next day all of a sudden – you know, uh, WCW is leaving the WWF in the, in the dust to where, um, you know, there's absolutely no hope of a, of a comeback. Um, you know, it was a, a gradual process, um, whereby, you know, week by week, obviously a lot of the intrigue became who's going to be the next person to, to join the group and, and what's going to be the next shocking turn. And, and you know, that was a, a big part of the appeal, especially at the end of the shows for quite some time. And you can make the case that, um, that ended up becoming somewhat of an Achilles heel because, you know, logically there's only going to be so many shocking turns and surprises and debuts, um, before you kind of, uh, you know, run out of gas, so to speak. Um, but, uh, but you, you look at how long WCW was able to, uh, run with that NWO narrative. Um, just, just an unbelievable catalyst really for, for the entire company. Yeah, and and you mentioned that it didn't happen overnight. It did take uh, some weeks. But you think they really caught the WWF at the time at uh, a, a, a really vulnerable period because hmm. I think it was a, a combination of things. And you can um, tell me what what your view on it is. Is you know the the product there was a lot going on with the company uh, still and. Uh, you know the the product wasn't great, and a lot and it, and the you'd seen kind of like this generation of superstars had kind of uh, had their run with the WWF, mm-hmm. and they'd never really had that kind of competition in in a very very long time. So, do you think it was was there one thing in particular that really stands out to you, or was it a, a combination uh, like some of the things I just mentioned? Well, it's interesting. I, I think the the low point. Um, and I, I remember speaking about this with a couple of the, the wrestlers themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, what, what they felt the low point was for the competition was when they did the, the fake, uh, you know, Razor Ramon and, and Diesel. You know, right. that was something you, you think about, uh, you know, Vince McMahon and what he represents. And obviously, you know, far better than I do, but what, what we as fans, as outsiders associate with his thought process and the idea that they actually did that. Um, you know, is, is, is pretty shocking to think about. That would have to be probably the low point. But, you know, as I think it, it, it touches on at some point in the book, I, I think there was always a risk that, you know, once the new coat of paint ran dry on a lot of those ex WWF stars that came over to WCW, many yeah. of them, of course, were, were presented in a, in a new way. And you would have to ima- imagine that, you know, that would kickstart another run for them for, 
um, a period of time, perhaps a year, maybe two years, maybe longer. But once that novelty wore off um, and an understanding what uh, Vince McMahon's you know, drive and uh, an obsessive um, personality you know, was, that he would really stop at nothing to use that as an opportunity to retool and, and, and present some, some new ideas. And of course, he didn't do that alone. But there was always the risk that, you know, should that happen, all of a sudden now WCW will go from, you know, this this hip, cool company um, to a company that features all of these, again, not to be disrespectful, but in the eyes of the casual fan, these has-beens, these, these old guys who, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did get a new coat of paint for a while. They did have a little bit of a, another run. Um, but but that's that, that in, and in and of itself is kind of run thin now. And, um, you know, that obviously created... Um, that obviously made it imperative, I should say, that um, while the company utilized those old stars, that they continue to build new stars. And um, that's something I know a lot of fans have have discussions about to this day as well, to what extent WCW was ever really able to do that. Yeah, and it really is incredible. incredible. Once they did overtake uh, Raw uh, and the Monday Night War really began, and I don't know, is it is it 83 or 88 weeks? Because uh, it seems like there's there's two. I mean, Eric's got a whole show on it, so I don't know, and it's been described, but I know that uh, I think you mentioned in the book it was 88 weeks. So is it? What's the the uh, the exact number of weeks? Well, it's funny because I you know I mentioned some of those um, company materials and memos, and yeah. and I, I have you know I'm quite fortunate to say I have stacks of. Of, uh, of files that I was able to retrieve um, that I, I won't go into how that happened, but a lot of yeah. things that were kind of under lock and key since the company closed. And I can tell you that internally, um, you know, up until the point of actually the WCW sale, the number was 88 weeks. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, a, a number that um, was reported actually at the, at the time of um, what was believed to be the original sale to, uh, to Fusion, which we can get into in early 2001 and then the eventual sale to Vince. But, uh, mm. so I, I think there is maybe some, um, maybe a discrepancy there, but, um, how about we just agree on the number one cable show for a long time? Yeah. We well, that? I would think, I would think Eric would grab that. I mean, uh, change the yep. name of the show, uh, Conrad, and, uh, right. you know, <laughs> 88 <laughs> weeks. But anyway, I mean, it, you're right. It is just a, an incredible amount of time, especially, when you're uh, you're besting uh, a company like the WWE, and uh, for that period of time, and and we don't really have time to break down every week, but tell me about the glory days. What was it like during that period of time uh, for the WCW and uh, the stars that they had uh, in the ring for them? Well, I think there was a sense, you know, and maybe this is human nature, you know, when you're part of something that. Um, seems to have taken on a life of its own and is gaining momentum and yeah. everything that you do works out, it seemingly, and every decision that you make, you know, turns to gold. I think there was a sense that, um, this was, was going to go on forever. And, you know, we talked about Hulk Hogan before. There's an interesting anecdote that Eric Bischoff talks about, which is, you know, at the very peak of Nitro, um, you know, Hogan kind of sitting him down and explaining that, you know, this this peak that we're at right now isn't going to last forever. You know, of course, he having gone through the um, the, the rise of or the expansion, I should say, of the WWF in the 80s and, and what happened thereafter. Um, so, you know, I think that there were perhaps uh, voices, you know, like him that um, were aware of the fact that it couldn't last forever. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I think certainly, you know, while the company was 
winning in the in the ratings competition and bringing in a lot of the international stars and exposing um you know a lot of of new talent um to american audiences you know i think uh if you look at the um what i would say creatively at least would probably be the the apex of wcw that being the famous nitro where goldberg you know beat beat hogan to think mm-hmm. that the entire company uh you know didn't exist less than 3 years after that is uh is a, is a pretty wild thing to get your head around although yeah. i will say and you know i said this recently on another show um you know i think again the creative piece is is one element of the story and i think if there was a direct correlation between uh and again it's subjective but the the creative output of a company and the likelihood that it would go out of business you know we we've probably seen some wrestling companies in recent years that would have gone out of business a long time ago so you know both both things can be true in terms of yes you know the quality of the of the shows uh, and the direction generally certainly took a turn for the worse um but while WCW did uh or or did receive certain advantages from the um from its uh uh TBS um association you know certainly a lot of the disadvantages associated with that came to become more prominent as the years went on and that's a, that's a large part of the book in and of itself yeah and uh we need to mention the other cast members in this that would would join them uh you know Sean Waltman would uh would be a part of it and of course uh, Ted DiBiase which is uh really an interesting uh, element to it and the giant uh but there's also you know and you mentioned Goldberg and um you know uh you look at him and they always say he he, he couldn't talk he uh you know uh wasn't you know, a great wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. Yet, what was it about him that also just captured the world's attention? Well, as you were saying that, it reminded me of a story Harvey Schiller tells in the book of, you know, Eric Bischoff saying to him at one point, you know, the secret to this whole thing is if you can't talk, you can't wrestle. And you know, <laughs> right. him, him, him sort of digesting that and deliberating on that and then, you know, placing a call to Bischoff when Goldberg really started to take off saying, well, you know, what's, what's the deal with this guy? Yeah. And, they, you know, basically getting in response, well, you know, this guy doesn't, doesn't need to talk. Have you, have you not seen him? And, um, you know, I, I think again, from, from a fan's point of view, you know, the physical charisma that the Goldberg had, um, was something that, you know, again, we talked about, to what extent a lot of this stuff could be um, could be sort of predetermined or, or you know uh, designed you know in advance? That's something I don't think you you, you could have designed or you, you could have taught someone to to have that kind of presence. Um, you know the, the simple fact is the way that he looked, the way that he moved, how crisp he was, how fluid he was, the fact that you know his matches were I would argue in, you know relatively speaking shockingly realistic. And, you know, certainly and unfortunately, and I think he's talked about this, there were some guys who, you know, got hurt in the midst of that. Um, But the fact that, you know, his matches just had a much different tone and a much different sort of visual look than anyone else, um, it would have been counterproductive for him to have a, you know, 25-minute, you know, five-star match. I think that would have taken away from his appeal. So I think that was just a an incredibly special and unique case of just a gifted athlete came along at the right time, had an incredible amount of physical charisma and uh, just connected with fans in a way that you couldn't have even dreamed of really. Yeah. I mean, and they had their misses, but 
it's mm. it's just amazing though it seemed uh, as though they could do no wrong for a period there and you also have to give credit to the rest of that supporting cast because they had you know undercard uh personalities on that roster who were tremendous i mean and bringing a different uh you know a different style of match to professional wrestling when you're seeing the stuff that Rey Mysterio was doing and Eddie Guerrero uh was that also another big part of why you uh, that led to the success beyond NWO and and uh, people like Goldberg Oh, absolutely. I, I think no. you know one one of the more rewarding things for me in the, in the process of writing the book was speaking to someone like a Kevin Sullivan and yeah. listening to him describe, you know, what what was the philosophy in terms of putting together a show, and for that matter, putting together a roster. You know, how 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 would you say you know you went about doing that? And I think he uses the the buffet. Uh, analogy or, or or something like that in terms of saying that you want to present something for everyone you know you don't just want to have the heavyweights match after match you don't just want to necessarily have the high flyers you know eight matches in a row but you want to present a variety of styles a, a variety of individuals that um are, are going to appeal to everyone and and maybe a certain style that brings in one fan may end up you know through the process of watching actually convert that fan to other uh, parts of the show in time as well but i think you know you look at um some of those people that were opening the shows back then and and sort of you know i suppose what you would call the the, the lower card or, or opening wrestlers you know you're talking about some of the more legendary names in the wrestling business eventually you know whether whether it's Rey Mysterio or Eddie Guerrero or, mm-hmm. or Chris Jericho we could go on and on yeah. you know a yeah. lot of, a lot of those a lot of those guys became legendary in their own right so um you know just taking in that roster and taking in the amount of sheer talent that was on every single show. Um, of course, that was a, just a, an unbelievable part of the appeal as well. You're right. Yeah. And that, that was, uh, you know, a big stage that, uh, you know, a lot of these guys that had control didn't like sharing. And the fact that they did get the attention they did and, of course, uh, would go on to have these tremendous careers is is uh you know it, it's just a great part of of wrestling history history and if people go back and and look at this they really should also look at some of these guys that were were coming up as well and of course you know we had we had Sting there and and uh, Lex Luger which were all part of this uh, at what point though and and like uh, you said you know when everything is just going. And, uh, you feel like you can do no wrong and it, it starts to get to you and the, and the money, uh, you know, you never saw this kind of money and guaranteed money. How did that impact, uh, wrestlers, uh, that were, you know, getting this kind of money and, and, uh, this fame? Well, Jerry Jarrett has some interesting comments on this in the book. You know, I spoke, spoke to him, um, on, on quite a few subjects because, of course, uh, not only with him being a, a long-time promoter, but he was actually a consultant with WCW for a while. He tried to um, get involved in, a, in an attempt to purchase the company at the very end. But one of uh-huh. the topics he talks about in the book is this very topic you mentioned, which is the psychological effect, I suppose, um, of the guaranteed contract structure, specifically on wrestlers. You know, and he says, you know, wrestlers are fueled by two things, hope and optimism. Mm-hmm. And when, when you take those things away and when you set up a, a, a system where, um, you know, they're, they're going to get paid no matter what, um, whether 
theoretically they they do a good job or not um that is something that's going to be counterproductive to the psyche of a wrestler now what's important to note i think and you can speculate as to the reasons why this existed but you know i think a lot of the times this practice is perhaps credited to eric bischoff specifically or it's credited to a decision that wcw itself made this was a turn of sports uh decision in terms of mm-hmm. adopting a similar contract structure that they were used to uh within their their corporate environment of course you know you, you had various professional sports teams that were under the tbs umbrella as well so whether it was ignorance on their part in terms of not appreciating what the wrestling business was all about or whether it was a matter of convenience and expediency in, you know in other words hey you know th- this is the way that our contracts are set up let's just basically duplicate this uh for matter of convenience with WCW um you know that that's again a matter of speculation um but that system did exist and you know i think as as many as many people have pointed out um that's all well and fine when the revenue is coming in hand over fist but as soon as you hit a period where there's a downturn and of course in any business that's going to happen uh that's when a lot of those contracts all of a sudden started to look like um you know albatrosses around the neck of the people uh, writing those checks and definitely came back to haunt WCW towards the end yeah and something else i found really interesting that they didn't seem to learn a lesson from is that early on uh with with WCW and you had uh people that you know, stepped into the ring who were also bookers, uh, you know, with, with Dusty and, and Ric Flair and that were really actively involved in the storylines and having a great deal of power. Mm. And it, it didn't seem like they learned their lesson before they entered uh, this part of uh, this phase of the history of the WCW when you had, you know, Hulk Hogan had complete creative control besides an unbelievable contract. And then also uh, so did uh Hall and Nash. And, you know, why do you think that they allowed that to happen? Because, uh, did you, was it that Bischoff felt like this is the only way I'm going to be able to pull this off or felt he needed their creative input? Well, I think making that concession to Hogan specifically, uh, yeah. you know, he, he had the, the language in his contract, uh, relating to complete creative control. You know, I think it's, it's sort of widely accepted, at least from the people who were there at the time, that that was more or less a condition of, um, you know, acquiring his services, whether or not in reality that's true or not. Um, yeah. but there seems to be, you know, the, the consensus that if we did not actually, you know, allow him to have that, we probably couldn't have made the signing. Now, obviously you know, one of the, um, one of the various issues with that is that that provision persisted all the way up and up, up until 2000 when Hogan mm-hmm. made his last appearance with WCW. You know, I think you could make a pretty good case that his drawing power had, um, at least as a WCW character, because of course he came back to, to Vince McMahon after that. But, um, in, on WCW television, his drawing power declined, um, you know, drastically. And yet he was still, yeah. um, he still had the ability to have creative control but you know as you were asking that question it got me thinking about um something that that marcus bagwell buff bagwell um had said to me in an interview for this book which is you know he of course was at wcw for 10 years from 91 until 01 and he had mentioned that you know the wrestlers always felt that the problem with wcw invariably would always be that the person pulling the strings behind the curtain would end up on tv 
you know, mm-hmm. and he and, and he started to list all of the names that followed that pattern. And, uh, you know, he mentioned that uh, I think, you know, you fast forward to the time that Vince Russo came into the company, that, that was one of the assurances yeah. that they were given. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, what happened afterwards was was a little bit different. So uh, it's 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 a good observation that you make that it seemed like um that would that would always be the case, you know, often to the detriment of the company, and they never quite had that that separation. Um, but of course, I think a lot of that had to do with the historical roots of WCW and the NWA and the way that, um, you know, as is my understanding, the way that the business functioned and operated back then, where you know the top wrestlers had, you know, a lot of autonomy over what they were doing on on the cards and what they were doing on the shows. So that's that's probably part of the mix as well, I think. Yeah, you know, I I know a big part of it. I mean, just anybody associated with NWO never lost. <laughs> there was a reason for that, and uh, to the detriment at, at some point. And so, do you think uh, when it, you know, the wheels started to fall off, when the when it started to, uh, you know, get uh, a little bit uh, uh, washed out, was it because of the creative control that these the influence that these guys had on the matches? Or was it that, you know, they started adding all these different, uh, you know, NWA, NWO members and then, uh, you know, uh, it just kind of just tired. Is that, you know, what, which, what do you think it was? Well, I think again, just, just sort of answering the question from a creative standpoint specifically, you know, you'd have to say that one of the issues eventually with the NWO storyline was that, they created this 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 dynamic, this incredible, you know, overarching uh, storyline that enveloped really the entire program. Because you can go back and look at some of those shows, even segments that didn't involve the NWO. The, that's what the announcers were talking about. Even when guys would come to the ring, you know, for interviews, and they weren't in a uh, in, in a program with uh, Hollywood Hogan, for example, they they found a way of getting his name in there, and it seemed like mm-hmm. you know the, there wasn't a minute that went by that you weren't hearing about Hogan, the NWO, their plan to take over WCW, and so on. And I think you know obviously that was tremendously successful, uh, not only uh, for a while, obviously for for quite a while, in mm-hmm. terms of how they put together their shows, but also, and this is again something I grew to really appreciate. Um, how WCW and, and, and actually wrestling generally, um, could be perceived to people who were not your hardcore followers of the genre, people who were sort of non-adherents, you know, the, the, the advertising community, for example, you know, ad sales was a very big deal back then. It's a di- obviously a different landscape now with streaming and, and, and everything else. You know, we don't have time to get into that, but, Back then, you know, ad sales was was absolutely pivotal for for WCW, and for them to have the ability to uh, you know show uh, some footage of their product and 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 talk about the fact that there's this invading group of wrestlers who've come from a rival promotion who are taking over WCW, and that that's something I, I think that anyone, regardless of whether you're a fan or not, could get your teeth into and could understand, and it kind of contextualized a lot of the chaos. And a lot of the violence and a lot of the twists and turns that were actually happening, um, because it all made sense under that kind of narrative umbrella. Um, the problem was, you know, where do you go from there? You know, yeah. how do you how do you transition out of that into basically regular programming? Um, how do you how do you top that? How do you develop a dynamic that's even more successful? And I think you mentioned earlier Brad Siegel. 
you know, one of the very telling uh, things I think that the book talks about in the final year of WCW was his insistence that uh, the, the company creatively look for the next big idea, the next, the next NWO. You know, what, mm. what is going to be that thing that we can sell to the, to the advertising community that we can um, talk about at our upfronts and our various, um, you know, interactions with, with, uh, uh, with, with everyone in our business? How can we make sense of this, this WCW programming for them? So it ended up, uh, you know, becoming something that just became very, very difficult to, uh, to follow up on. Yeah, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our uh, beginning of our conversation, is that uh, like I said, it was just one tremendous idea that had uh, people had not seen before, and uh, was it that when it ran its course, like all storylines do? I mean, that's a reason that territories were successful early on in the business because they could have uh, you know a, a a star a wrestler in the territory and he would run this storyline with somebody. It'd be just red hot. And just when it peaked, that guy would disappear and go to another territory and they'd bring somebody else in. I mean, it's just the natural course of things. Uh, but what do you, th- do you think it was? It just, they didn't have anything to follow up with once it had run its course. Well, one of the suggestions that I find quite interesting to think about, Diamond Dallas Page talks about this in the book, is mm-hmm. you know, he, he mentions sitting down with, with Eric Bischoff and saying, look, the way to go from here is let's do the invasion again, but essentially in reverse. You know, let's have WCW be the invaders. Let's, let's set up something where the NWO has taken over, you know, and, and the company essentially is the NWO. And mm-hmm. let, let, let's, let's sort of establish that new point of equilibrium for a while. And then let's have, you know, the, the old WCW guard come back in and maybe we can get another year or two years out of that. And that suggestion kind of coincided, unfortunately, with the uh, rebranding of WCW, which took place in mm-hmm. the spring of, of 1999. And I think what, what's quite interesting to me is, um, you know, part of the process writing this book as well was 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 getting the, the perspective of, other fans and and sort of taking in what they thought was important, and you'd be surprised how many people really associate uh, you know the the downfall of WCW with um, that move to do this radical uh, rebranding. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, there's causation there. I'm not saying that, but it mm-hmm. was around the same time that the company completely revamped its logo, had this these very bizarre series of of of, of uh, advertisements that were showing up that really didn't sort of uh make any sense in terms of what the company represented and uh and and almost everyone in the company was was against it and not a fan of it and it's it's hard to imagine something like that happening in the WWF it's hard to imagine you know them completely um changing everything uh where where Vince McMahon himself you know wasn't able to stop it um and doing something that was you know unpopular to the entire workforce uh that didn't represent what that company was all about so uh unfortunately that suggestion in terms of reversing the the invasion sort of uh came at the wrong time yes yeah, so what do you think was the beginning of the end from your viewpoint for uh the whole NWO and and Eric Bischoff, the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I I think really again just looking at looking at it through the lens of the on-screen product, you know, you'd have to say that 
around that same time period, around the, the, the spring of 99, that's when the numbers really started to fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at, um, there's a chapter in the book about so May. fast. Very fast. And, and, yeah. and of course, you know, that coincided with the WWF really going to a new plateau as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's something that, um, probably can get forgotten about sometimes in, in the discussion as well is that there were two parties or, or two entities, I should say, at play here in the story. And at the same time that WCW really started to implode and not follow up on, on this big idea. And of course they had all of the corporate chaos that was accelerating and, and going to another level as well. Uh, the fact is that the WWF you know, earned the audience that it gained. And yeah. you had, you had these two really once in a generation stars that, that, that came onto the scene and, and really, um, accelerated at the same time. And so, uh, it was the absolute worst timing for, for WCW because perhaps if that hadn't have happened on the other side, the company could have bought themselves a little bit more time to, uh, to sort of reboot and, and, and retool before giving it another run. But, um, as you mentioned that the gap between the companies just got so wide so quickly within a matter of a couple of months that, uh, from there it was, you know, a, a series of reboots and restarts and, um, and, and new people coming in really for the last 18 months of the company's existence. Just, just nothing but, uh, but false starts really. Yeah, and and it's and it's really true that you do have to give credit to the WWE and what was going on there, with uh, you know after what they had gone through and and all these old superstars as uh, uh, we I guess we'd have, have to have referred to them at that time, mm-hmm. but then you did have this emergence of of The Rock and and uh, Steve Austin, mm-hmm. and also Degeneration X, and it was a I, I find it kind of laughable because I know that, uh, you know, early on Vince was writing letters of, you know, the outrage that they were in mm-hmm. the gutter and, uh, you know, the blasphemy of stuff they were putting on TV. And that's a, boy, they went there and beyond. I mean, oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. but, but, but it worked and you do have to give them credit for, uh, what they were doing. It wasn't so much, uh, you know, on the other side of the WCW beginning to tank. But also the WWE was putting out a product there that at the time the fans couldn't get enough of. And I think what was, again, for lack of a better word, brilliant about that approach yeah. was that the WWF knew that WCW couldn't go there. You know, and I, I think, you know, right. by pushing, pushing the envelope in that direction and knowing what the environment was at Turner and mm-hmm. what Ted Turner's personal, uh, tastes were in terms of what he found to be suitable programming and knowing uh, about the fact that there was a standards and practices uh, division that was very prevalent within the company and, and uh, even to the point where they were requesting, you know, scripts of WCW shows in advance uh, and just knowing what that entire corporate environment was like, you know, mm-hmm. that was a move that, that could not really be countered to any appreciable degree by WCW. So, um, y- you know, I, I think uh, they were willing and able to go places that their competition couldn't at that time. And, uh, you know, we mentioned just what a different environment and landscape it was then as compared to back now. You go back and look at some of those shows, and I think to the modern viewer, they would probably uh, be amazed that a lot of that stuff even aired in the first place. Yeah, and at the the close of the decade there, um, how bad were things at the WCW? And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that they, they hung with it for as long as they did after that, but how bad did it get at that point 
to when Eric was let go. Yeah, I think, you know, what happened really was it was kind of a full circle scenario where you had this company that was really a source of embarrassment uh, that against all all odds. And again, you know, you can list certainly the advantages that WCW had being owned by TBS and the fact that, you know, they had that built in distribution on the Turner networks and they could begin the shows early and start late and advertise and cross promote um, with various other, you know, uh, TBS properties and entities. And, and obviously the, the, the financial uh, support of, of Ted Turner himself as well. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of its perception, it went from uh, being something they weren't pleased and proud to have to something they begrudgingly accepted to something that because it was doing well and because it was uh, bringing in uh, money hand over fist uh, was something that they actually expanded with the Thunder Show and Nitro going to three hours yeah. for a period of time. But, but you know, invariably and inevitably, it, it, it went back to where things started, where, you know, the, the on-screen product was obviously um, uninspired. It was It was directionless, I think most fans would say, by... You know, the summer fall of, of 99, all of the primary indicators, um, in terms of revenue were, were heading the wrong way. Um, you know, as you mentioned that Eric Bischoff was, was sent home in September of, of 99. And, mm-hmm. and really from, from there on out, I think, uh, you know, Ed Ferrara, who obviously came in with, with Vince Russo, he, he mentioned, uh, uh, in, in an interview that it was almost like clockwork from that point on. It was almost every three months, uh, there was a radical change where it was a, it was either an, a new person in charge or, or a committee of people or a combination of people, as in the case of, uh, ultimately Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff, you know, and th- this was going to be the turning point. This is where, you know, we, we're all of a sudden going to change things and, and challenge Vince again. And, um, you know, painful to, to watch, you know, a lot of that, of that, that content really, um, in terms of the last year, year and a half of, of the company, I think most, most people would say. Yeah. It seems that they, they would come to appreciate what Eric Bish, Eric Bischoff did. I mean, was able to accomplish, uh, you know, too late, uh, down that road. But why do you think that they held on at that point when they, well, you said they, they sent Eric home? That they didn't, they just, just didn't decide, you know, uh, this experiment, I mean, it was great. It was a great run, but we can't, it's over. Or do they think that bringing Vince Russo in would somehow, uh, have somebody there who could reignite it and they could get back on that roller coaster with the buckets of cash? It's interesting because, you know, that there are some, uh, some people who work at WCW that believe that when, Eric Bischoff was sent home and, and Bill Bush, who was essentially an accountant, uh, prior to that was, was put in charge of WCW, mm-hmm. that, that this was a way of gracefully sort of running out the clock. That this guy, you know, we're bringing this guy in to sort of cut our losses, to try to shore up the, the balance sheet, so to speak. And, you know, hey, if, if somehow we capture lightning in a bottle again and things take off, great. But if not, you know, this guy is going to put things in a position to wind down. Now, I suppose the problem with that logic is the fact that a month after Bill Bush comes in, you know, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara come in and assign to pretty substantial two-year contracts, uh, which is not really the behavior you'd expect from someone running a company if the goal is to sort of gracefully wind down and get out of the wrestling business. So I think yeah. you, you'd have to you'd have to sort of deduce from that fact that obviously they were optimistic that, well, 
you know, the only reason WWF came back is because of their risque, crazy ideas. Well, now we've got the guys who were responsible for a lot of that. Um, so we're going to be, you know, all we've got to do is a version of that within our limits and we'll be absolutely fine and we'll, we'll kickstart this thing all over again. Uh, and obviously that didn't happen. So, um, it wasn't until later on in 2000 where obviously the first talks of actually selling the company, um, really became serious. Yeah, and it, it's just amazing how it all ended up and, and how, how quickly at the end there it, it did. Uh, but it was just an incredible time. I mean, there's, uh, it, it changed the world of professional wrestling forever and, uh, very much to the, the benefit of, uh, these sports entertainment, uh, performers, these athletes. Uh, who now uh, have guaranteed contracts or making incredible money. Mm. Uh, and, and that period of time helped make that happen. And, uh, you know, Eric Bischoff can always have that in his pocket, knowing that, that he was a big part of that. Uh, Guy, I've got some questions from when uh, folks heard I was going to be interviewing you. If it's okay, yeah. I'd like to throw a few at you. Absolutely. Uh, Matt Miller from uh, our Patreon membership uh, says, uh, in your opinion, was there anything that, could have been done to save WCW or was its demise inevitable? It was going to happen no matter what. I think, you know, as the, as the subtitle of the book indicates, I think the demise was inevitable due to the fact that WCW never had a full degree of control over its own affairs. And that's where really the distinction lies uh, when you compare WCW with the WWF. You know, the WWF was going to exist as long as uh, Vince McMahon and the and the uh, people running the company uh, could could keep it afloat and wanted it to exist. And, and that wasn't the case in, in WCW. You know, Eric Bischoff's position was not analogous to Vince McMahon. You know, he mm-hmm. was reporting to a president of Turner Sports who himself was part of um, an executive committee and, and so on and so forth. So really, the further that uh, Ted Turner himself got away from being able to, uh, you know, be that, um, that sort of security blanket for WCW, the more likely it was that the company was inevitably going to go away. And, uh, and, you know, again, because of the lack of internal support, um, and I would also argue, and maybe people listening would have, uh, an opinion about to what extent this is true now, but especially back then, mm-hmm. you know, another thing that the company was, was always fighting against was the fact that it was a wrestling company. And, you know, regardless of, uh, of, of who were, was in those key spots running the networks, you know, we're, we're talking about people again at, at that time in television and, and the entertainment business more generally that looked down upon wrestling and saw it as, you know, an inferior form of entertainment that, um, unattractive audiences figuratively and figuratively and perhaps literally, uh, mm-hmm. were, were actually interested in. So, you know, the, the more of those people that had, uh, influence in WCW and its affairs, the, it was only going to be, uh, it was only going to spell bad news for the company. Yeah. As long as that stepchild made the money, they were happy. But as soon as it was, uh, bingo, it, it dried up, they, uh, <laughs> they're out back again. Correct. Uh, Dennis Sailing uh, says uh, or asks, uh, was mankind winning the world championship on Raw really the turning point, or was it something else? Well, I think you know we talked about the spring of '99, so that would have been in January of '99, January the fourth, yeah. and you know I, I think 
it's it's interesting again to go back and look at the numbers and you'll see that there was still tremendous interest in Nitro uh following following that night, at least throughout the rest of, of January. So in other words, it wasn't an immediate thing where because if you remember this was the night of the, the infamous finger poke on, on Nitro. Uh, mm-hmm. that was what was in opposition to the to the Mick Foley title win. So it yeah. wasn't as if, you know, the, the the second that that all happened uh that you know WCW just cratered I think, you know, again, the problem, just speaking as a fan, and a lot of fans would agree, was, again, the follow-up to that. You know, they uh, reformed the NWO. They set up this situation where they had really embarrassed and humiliated Goldberg in in Atlanta, his hometown. And, you know, Goldberg never really got his revenge against the NWO. And and by the time he did, you know, fans didn't really care. And a uh, a lot of those bad guys that had wronged him in that way you know, by that point, curiously, were you know were good guys, and 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 vice versa. And there was a lot of there was a lot of confusion at that time, and and that's when the storylines I think really became very difficult to follow. So I guess to answer the question, I would say again, just you know, being opinionated, that was certainly a factor, but it was more so what happened afterwards. I think that really uh, really uh, mattered more. Yeah. Uh, here's a fun one from Garrett Hernandez. He says, "Would you ever be interested in seeing?" The Nitro book turned into a TV miniseries, and who would play Eric Bischoff? <laughs> well, John well, Davidson's too old now, so he couldn't, I don't think. <laughs> well, I have no idea about the second question, but uh, who was that that asked that question, Sean? What was the, what Garrett was the Hernandez wanted to know, uh, would you ever like to see the uh, Nitro book turned into a, a TV miniseries? Well, you know what, Garrett, if you, ha- if you have the funds and if anyone yeah. listening uh, you know, knows anyone, then please uh, hit me up. I think that would be a tremendous idea. Why not? Yeah, Netflix would probably be very interested. There's, I'll, tell you, uh, Jim, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing on a serious note, though, and I think you'd agree, there's more than enough material. Am I right? For Oh, uh, my God. Yes. I mean, I you, mean you, you, you could do a, you know, a number of, uh, of seasons on this story, just the personalities uh, involved alone. No, no kidding. I could see it on Netflix. It would be awesome. Yeah. I, and uh, Eric could produce it. There you go. I like <laughs> it. Very well, a winner. I like it. Uh, uh, Jared England, uh, also from our Patreon uh, membership, uh, says, uh, who was your favorite person to interview for the book? Who would you en- enjoy the most? Well, this is going to kind of catch you off guard, I think, because this is a name uh, not necessarily known to uh, WCW fans. But um, there's a guy by the name of Bill Burke who was the president of the TBS network. Actually, at a very uh, young age, coincidentally, back then, I, I think he got the job when he was about 29. Um, so this guy was kind of a bit of a prodigy within the uh, the TBS mm-hmm. uh, company and uh, worked very closely with Ted. In fact, he basically wrote um, Ted's uh, most recent autobiography. So, uh, knows Ted Turner, you know, better than, than most people on, on this earth. And, you know, I actually had the chance to sit down with Bill in person because I, I actually did quite a few of these interviews, um, opposite people face to face with, with people and spent about two, two and a half hours with, with Bill. And, you know, we touched on, not just WCW, but, but, but Turner and, and, and TV and entertainment and what it was like back then, the ratings and advertisers and all the pressures that came with it. And, you know, this is going to kind of sound a little bit off the wall, but I, I left that interview with just such a, a, a gratitude really that, uh, doing this, this book had given me the opportunity to speak to someone like that because, you know, and again, this isn't the case all of the time, but a lot of times you'll meet people you know, on your journey of doing something like this, that you'll learn things from 
that yes can be helpful for your particular project you're working on, but can yeah. also help you in, in in broader ways as well. And I really, you know, the risk of sounding kind of cheesy, I really felt like that after speaking with him that that was, you know, a, a couple of hours really well spent where I really learned a lot um, mm-hmm. that could help me put this story in much better context and and also help me understand, you know, a lot of why. Uh, certain decisions were made at that time. So that's an interview that I really feel grateful that I had the the chance to do. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, Guy, that's what I really enjoyed uh, about this book is my perspective had been from, you know, the WWF and how that company was run and to get that perspective from this big, giant corporation where, you know, the WCW was just this little part of it down, down the, uh, you know, the, the spreadsheet uh, was really interesting. And uh, what were your efforts, though, to try and get Ted to sit down with Ted and Vince? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll, I'll speak to Ted, you know, specifically, because that was obviously that would have been the ultimate gap. You know, yeah. if, if somehow, um, you know, we could have arranged for an interview with, with Ted specifically. You know, I mentioned um speaking with with Bill Burke that was in early 2017 and it was around that time that um you know I I learned that Ted was experiencing I think some of the health issues that have now become public I think he's done you know a couple of interviews in the last year where that's become pretty well known and the sort of consensus was at that time that you know unfortunately he wasn't in a position where um, you know, because of health reasons that he'd really be able to give his input. So, you know, I, I was able to, um, get a statement from, from his foundation, which, which addresses his ownership of WCW. Um, of course, I was able to speak to many, many people who know him well and, and worked with him. And I think his, um, personality hopefully shines through in the book um mm. although he's not directly part of the book so um that that would have been you know just just an incredible thing to have him part of it but as i say i'm i'm comfortable that there's enough of him that comes through that that sort of compensates and for vince uh, i don't know what your efforts were to try and get yeah, him but so so yeah I, I there there were efforts you know i did go through um i did go through some some people to try to make that happen um i think that was one where you know whereas with ted especially prior to learning about some of those health things there was always a hope that it could happen um you know i i was pretty much uh resigned to the fact that you know the 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 vince mcmahon um interview was um probably a very long shot you know and that and that mm-hmm. turned out to be the case um but I, you know, I think, you know, he's made enough, um, you could say to, to some degree, he's made enough public statements about this. They've presented certainly no shortage of programming about their perspective that I think readers would, would come to this book, you know, firmly, uh, having firmly in mind what the, uh, the Vince McMahon slash WWE perspective is on the Monday Night Wars. Um, so at least I think people have that as a starting point when they're reading the book. Yeah, maybe you, you answered this already, but, uh, also, uh, Jared England asks, uh, is there anybody you wish you could have interviewed and, and, uh, didn't get the chance to? Are there any others? Yeah, I think, I think Ted would probably be the, the main person. Yeah. You know, again, yeah. again, we were able to get uh, in the book, you'll hear from, from Jamie Kellner, Javi Schiller, Eric, Eric Bischoff. You know, you'll hear from people like Brian Bedall, who was uh, slated to be the CEO of WCW should the, the sale have gone through. You'll hear from uh, Stuart Snyder, who's someone who's been 
wrapped up in a lot of the controversy with the WCW sale. And as I said, you know, over 120 people in total who give their voice to the book. And it's not just um, their opinions that drive the narrative. It's, it's, you know, part of the the challenge in putting together something like this is cross-referencing what people tell you with, you know, a lot of the objective data and, and numbers and, and facts and figures that uh, some of which is public, but a lot of which wasn't public prior to the book coming out. So being able to combine those two things, you know, I, I'd like to think that um, when, when you read this book, uh, you, you'll hopefully leave with the impression that it's a, a fair look at the time period, because I don't think there's a, a, a single person on earth who'd be interested in just hearing some random guy, you know, give his opinion on the, uh, on the WCW story. So that's what I was trying to avoid. Um, this is, I, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but uh, DC Fadeaway Man uh, wants to know, uh, when Bret Hart entered WCW, did the promotion consider any Canadian tours or even regular Canadian house shows? Uh, I don't, you know, like tours were not, uh, they, they had them, but it wasn't uh, like uh, the WWF, you know, did with their house shows in the, you know, extensively across the country. But do you know, was there... Canada bit a part of the plan ever? Yeah, that's a that's a curious subject because you know Bret Hart signed in November of '97. He came in in December of '97, yeah. and it wasn't until March of '99 that WCW actually went to Canada and had a show at the Air Canada Centre, which was brand new at the time. And of course, they went back for a pay per view that November, did some shows in 2000, but that was pretty much it. And you know, unfortunately. You know, WCW, I think, especially once the Nitro years got underway, um, you know, did not really have a big presence anywhere internationally. And, you know, Canada, you know, I, I would say would, would be part of that. Uh, you know, they went to Australia in the waning few months of the company. They did a couple of tours of the UK, but that was more or less when things were, were wrapping up. So it's, it's quite a, a curious subject, as I say, because you would think logically, you know, that would be one of the first orders of business when Bret Hart uh, came in to book a tour of Canada or at least get a building in Canada immediately. Um, but there was uh, there was a 15, 16 month time period in between. So that's uh, that's kind of a mystery to me as well. Yeah. And it's it's a mystery. I mean, I mean Bret was a huge star and a, a great uh, performer in the ring. And it, it, it didn't seem and he's talked about it before. They paid him a lot of money. And it just didn't seem like they really knew what to do with them. That, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, again, you'll hear from different people in the book on that one. I, I know that, mm. and, and again, this, this is not something that's limited to the book, but, you yeah. know, Eric Bischoff has been of the opinion that, well, you know, he didn't feel like they had the same Bret Hart as the WWF had, whereas Bret Hart was obviously very frustrated with, you know, as we talked about earlier, some of the, uh, some of his uh, perceptions of the lack of uh, foresight and planning and direction for his character. Um, mm-hmm. So it was obviously, um, you know, a missed opportunity. It was something that um, should have been capitalized on. And, and it's, it's unfortunate. Again, you go back and look at those shows pretty much within three months, you know, he was kind of just someone on the roster, you know, going from, you know, coming from that, that, that Montreal situation and obviously what he represented beforehand, you would have thought this would be a guy headlining, you know, cards every single yeah. month and, and, uh, just never happened for him at, at WCW. Yeah, just amazing. All right. Just a couple more here. Um, and, and this is a good one. Uh, Bic, uh, Cihota, uh, says, are you planning on writing another book? And if so, what's the topic? 
Yeah, so I, I've actually got a couple of um, a couple of books that are sort of underway right now. Um, I, I'll hope to announce something. I, I sort of hesitate to say more than that, just because some people listening may know that, you know, this book eventually came out in 2018, um, but there were a couple of delays ahead of time because, quite frankly, you know, I kept getting access to more and more people and more and more information kept coming in. And I kept having to push it back because I just felt it wasn't, it wasn't quite where I needed it to be. So, um, you know, maybe I'm skipping ahead to the plugs here, but you can always, uh, follow us on, on Twitter. It's, it's, uh, WCW Nitro Book. And, uh, hopefully pretty soon I can let you know what's going on with that. But yes, I'll, I'll definitely be, uh, following up 100%. Well, Guy, uh, really, this has been a, a tremendous conversation. And, you know, uh, through it all, I mean, you look at it and it is, uh, it was a glorious period for wrestling fans, uh, no matter how you look at it, the rise and fall and all of it in between and, uh, some just uh, incredible personalities. Uh, to you, is it the most fascinating period uh, of, uh, wrestling history? Oh, I- Absolutely. I mean, for me yeah. personally, again, I'm, I'm somewhat biased because as I mentioned, yeah. this, this was the period that, um, really made me a fan. So I, I can't, you know, it's hard for me to compare to perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, the boom in the eighties, for example. Um, but to my eyes, I think, you know, again, just, just you look at the, the personalities alone. I mean, you start with Vince McMahon and Ted Turner and you work your way on down and you, you think about, um, just some of the iconic, extremely unique people that were involved in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, that part of the story, I think, is just as, if not more, fascinating than anything that happened on screen. Um, just a, just a, an amazing collection of of people on both sides who, you know, created a period of time that obviously is still being talked about today and probably will always be talked about. Yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, regardless of what you think of the personalities that were involved in all of this, uh, they really do deserve a thank you from these guys that have followed behind them because, uh, if it wasn't for, uh, you know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff and, uh, all the rest of those, uh, those people involved in all this and Turner and of course the WWE, it wouldn't have changed things the way it is now that, uh, these guys really, uh, when you get to that level, you can make a great living and have a uh, great career and not be on the road, uh, you know, for months at a time and, uh, you know, paying your way everywhere you go and, and trying to make it home for a couple of days. It really changed the world of wrestling forever. So uh, with that, Guy, how, how can folks get a copy of the book? It is really worth reading, and there's some just great history in there and great backstories uh, and a different view of what was going on and, and uh, being able to see it from the point of view of, uh, you know, of Turner and, uh, and everybody else that was involved in this. How can they get the book? Well, uh, first of all, Sean, I just want to say thank you again for the invite. You know, it's been really, really a pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can do it again at some point in the future. And uh, in terms of where people can check out the book, there's two places, really. You can go to wcwnitrobook.com. Uh, and that's where you can order the paperback or the uh, ebook version of the book. But you can also go onto Amazon as well. And again, you can get the paperback, you can get the Kindle there. Um, but also, hopefully, by the time people are listening to this, you can get the audiobook version, which is uh, something that we've been working on for quite some time since the book actually came out. So 
Um, so wcwnitrobook.com or Amazon, um, as I say, to to also uh, get that audiobook version. But again, Sean, I just uh, I really appreciate your time, and it was uh, flattering to uh, to be invited in the first place. So I appreciate it. Well, you got it. And uh, when you got the next project going, please let me know because uh, I'll help you back on here. I'd love to uh, find out what you're doing next. But uh, Guy Evans, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you, Sean. All right. I really, really enjoyed talking to Guy and, uh, you know, uh, doing the research for that uh, for that interview, of course, with with Guy. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just fascinating to me that uh, you, you, before you get to that point, you know, where the, the everything actually started happening with the NWO and everything that was going on with, you know, the bringing in uh, Razor Ramon and Kevin Nash and uh, them uh, then bringing on Hulk Hogan and how that changed the dynamic of everything and just, you know, set this all into motion. And we shouldn't forget that that wasn't all that was happening, although that was the one brilliant idea that I think, you know, held this all together and catapulted the uh, WCW uh, into the stratosphere where it was and, and how it was able to beat uh, the WWE for that period of time. But also there was a lot more going on uh, beyond that with some of the superstars, or I shouldn't say superstars, that was uh, limited to the WWE, but some stars that were developing who were really great wrestlers that were a part of that uh, WCW effort. And uh, some of these high flyers and uh, guys that were future stars that were developing and were allowed to develop there. And people appreciated uh, what was going on then. So uh, I, I really, I was just, just fascinated by all that. And be sure and tune in next week where we're going to hear from Eric Bischoff here on Primetime with Sean Mooney. Uh, folks, you can catch uh, all we do every week uh, right uh, here. And also we've got Monday where we've got the Network Classics. This past week we did uh, Monday Night Raw from March 15th, 1993, which was uh, an interesting episode. It was a live show out of Poughkeepsie, New York, and had uh, become a, a difficult situation because they'd had a big blizzard, and so they had all these travel problems trying to get people to, um, you know, come in and be able to work that were scheduled who couldn't just couldn't get there, and they put this whole show together. And also you get to see Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon together um, as they uh, – uh, Vince is out. And it, it, Vince wasn't out because of the storm, but he had an appearance where he was getting an award – from the Michael Landon Foundation, uh, where he was going to be presented by this award by Hulk Hogan. But uh, that's uh, one of the network classics uh, that we feature this week on Monday. And then, of course, uh, on uh, Saturday, we have a, a Vault episode that uh, we release. So there's lots of content to keep you occupied if uh, you are uh, working from home or if you're just uh, if you're at home uh, among the millions of people, unfortunately, who are... Um, out of work right now. And, um, you know, I, I hope we get through this soon. I hope that uh, you're, you're, you're uh, faring well, that you've gotten uh, your stimulus check uh, at this point. And I know it's not, uh, not going to fill the hole completely, but at least it's something to help you um, get by for now. But God, we can only pray that we are on the other end of this thing and that uh, somehow life uh, gets back to somewhat normal um, very, very soon. But uh, in the meantime, please check out all of our content. If you're a Patreon member 
you can uh, get all this uh, for uh, early and ad free just for as little as four ninety nine a month. If you can uh, do that, uh, you know, and you'd prefer to catch all the episodes that way, you love to have you do it. But otherwise, you know, you can catch this all absolutely free uh, just by going to your favorite podcast platform. If you catch it on uh, Apple Podcasts, I'd love to have you subscribe and then uh, give us a rating and a review. Uh, but however you get it, man, Spotify, whatever, whatever, you can uh, you can catch it all. Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. It's all released at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, but if you'd like to check out Patreon, you can do that. Just go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney. Patreon.com slash primetimemooney. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We uh, put stuff up all the time, uh, what we're up to and what episode is out. And uh, you can follow us. At Primetime Mooney for both, for both Twitter and Instagram, it's at Primetime Mooney. And of course, I'd love to hear from you. You got any uh, thoughts or suggestions, or you just want to let me know how you're doing, you can uh, get in touch with me by going to uh, primetimemooney at gmail.com, primetimemooney at gmail.com. Send me an email. Love to hear from you. Uh, but in the meantime, please stay safe, stay, stay uh, healthy. And we're all going to get through this, and I hope that uh, just in some small way that uh, we're helping you do that. So stay tuned. A lot more still to come. As I said, don't uh, miss that episode next week with Eric Bischoff. In the meantime, uh, thanks for tuning in once again. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Mm